Amen. Thank you, Mike. Good morning, everybody. Uh, kids, elementary school kids, you are dismissed to your class. While you're doing that, I'm going to speak to what we're doing um, in this moment. So we have, we have a lot of children in, the, in our church, if you haven't noticed. Some of them are college-age students, and some of them are elementary-age students. Uh, but kids are a vital part of the family of God. And we invite and encourage them to participate in every environment when our church gathers. And so when we worship, we want them to not only to learn the songs that we're singing, but we want them to see the adults in their life worshiping well. And so we invite them in, and then they go to their rooms for uh, kind of more age-appropriate uh, teaching. But it's an important part of the rhythms of our church for kids to be involved. And so uh, when you see a child in our space, would you just encourage them, tell them you're glad that they're here. And uh, same thing in family groups. I mean, one of our biggest prayers in family groups is that kids would get to the point in their own faith journey where they would desire to sit in on the discussion of God's Word. And so Anyways, I, every time I see kids walk out, I just am reminded that they're a gift from the Lord, and so I'm grateful for that. Uh, a couple of announcements as we start this morning. The, the first is next weekend is our night of worship. So if you haven't made plans to be here, uh, change your plans and be here. Uh, it'll be 5.30 at the BCM house. And um, our team's been working on this for, I don't know, a couple months at this point. And we're just really eager and very expectant for what God has for us as our church just pauses what we normally do to do something that's very intentional for our heart and our own formation. So I hope that you'll uh, make time to, to be there for that. Uh, second, uh, Caleb Noggle is in the room. Caleb, we just waved to us. Um, that's Caleb over there. Hey, Caleb. Uh, Caleb uh, works with Families for Families, and he's got a table set up today. We've been talking a lot about orphan care, uh, just because that's what the text in Exodus has been talking about. If you missed that, you can go back and listen online. But um, their, their organization, that's what they do, is help kids get plugged in and, and foster care uh, and with the hope and prayer eventually to be adopted into a family. And so uh, if that's something that you're interested in learning more about, I'll mention this again uh, at the end of the service, but uh, Caleb's going to be over there until there's no people left. And so go at least introduce yourself to him if you haven't met him. Okay, so how I want to, if you have your Bible, uh, let's, let's jump in. We're in Exodus chapter 23, uh, verses 10 through 19 is our task for today. Uh, but before I do that, I, do, I want to speak to what's going on in our world, because I think it's an important thing for us not to miss as uh, a body of Christ, a local church. And I'm talking specifically about the revivals happening, particularly in college campuses, although I know now that it started to seep into Main Street, which is awesome. Um, so I just, I want to just talk about that, if that's okay. This has nothing to do with Exodus, although it has everything to do with Exodus, okay? Uh, so this one's entirely free. It is in my notes, so I planned time-wise to let you out. Um, but I think it's important for us to talk about it. And it's important maybe for you to hear what I think about it and kind of my, my initial reaction and how God has even changed my own heart as I see and hear the stories that are coming out of places like Asbury and Lee and uh, Samford and those places. So, um, when I, I think what, what's happening in these contexts, in these college campuses in particular, is genuine revival, okay? So let me just clear the air. Like, if you're like me, I'm a natural skeptic, 
okay? And that's just true. That doesn't make me a bad person. It just makes me a human. That's how my brain works. My, my initial reaction is usually one of skepticism. I don't know if anyone else in the room is that way. If it's just me, I feel horrible, but I don't think I am. I think I'm the only one who's maybe honest enough to say I'm a skeptic. Um, and that's okay. I st- I'm a pastor, okay? I literally get paid. I've been ordained by the church to do and to teach God's word. And God has wired me with a brain and a heart, y'all, sometimes, that runs to skepticism, okay? So it's not sinful or wrong in its own, but what I've got to do is I have to like, slow myself down, right? Before I ever cast judgment, I want to hear, and I want to listen, and I want to see, okay? And I think that's responsible, um, but what I, what I was reminded this week, um, again, I'm a church history guy, okay? And I was, if, does anyone know Jonathan Edwards, know the name? Um, Jonathan Edwards uh, is a Puritan pastor, theologian, probably the greatest American theologian um, since, like, up until maybe Garth Brooks, okay? Um, <laughs> but he was, the, he was the, the little spark that really kind of catapulted, I'm sorry for that, um, that catapulted the Great Awakening, okay? So he's, he lived in the 17th, 1700s. Uh, he died in like the 17, late 50s, I think. Uh, but in the 1740s, there was a massive revival that happened at Yale College, which is now Yale University. Uh, very different than what it was back then. It used to be a Christian school. Um, and, and Jonathan Edwards was a part of that. He was there. He was involved. And uh, he wrote this, and I just want to read this. Um, this is a, kind of a summary of his thoughts, okay? But Jonathan Edwards proposed, he gave it gives this definition of revival, which I found to be really helpful, okay? He says that um, the proposed biblical, or Jonathan Edwards proposed that the biblical way to test a revival was to examine its fruit, okay? To examine its fruit, not to focus on its initial excitement and noise. These are Jonathan Edwards' words, not mine. And then in parentheses, he says, or lack thereof. Not all revivals look the same, by the way, Okay? Uh, He argued that true revival only comes via the Holy Spirit, which I don't think any of us in the room would disagree with that, okay? Uh, Revival, by the way, is not a biblical term. Uh, It's it's a term that we've given to um, kind of the presence of the Spirit and then the human response to the presence of the Spirit, okay? This is, when we say revival, let me just tell you what I mean when I say revival. I mean like uh, people turning from sin, and walking in the ways of Jesus. That's revival. Okay, so just to keep it in the context, revival has happened in this church. Revival has happened on our campus. It's happening in our communities. What we're seeing on these college campuses is magnified and accelerated, which praise God for that, right? So get past the skepticism and to see for what it actually is. Now, I think there's a call too for the church. I'm going to continue with Edwards, um, but it can't, it, it is the work of the Holy Spirit, okay? True revival, is the work of the Holy Spirit, to be tested over time. Then he says this, he says, the signs of genuine spirit-driven revival include four things, okay? And I think these are helpful four things for us to remember. The first is they enhance the glory of Jesus, okay? If you have watched or seen, I don't think there's any doubt, there's no doubt in my mind that that is what is happening on some of these campuses, at least the ones that I've read about. The second is to damage the interests of Satan, Okay, y'all, the clips that I've seen, it's confession of sin, it's repentance, that is crushing the head of the serpent, okay? That is a good and right thing, okay? The third is a people's greater regard for the Bible, okay? Uh, Again, back to what I've seen, and I'm not there, I'm not going to fly up there to participate, I don't think that's 
my job to do that. Um, but it looks, it seems that the Bible is at the core of what's catapulted uh, this revival. And then the last one, number four, is a greater love for God and neighbor. And I think that's the fruit to be tested. Okay? So when we look back on the revival of Asbury, that's the filter that we will judge its revivalness. Okay? So when we, when we think of revival, we're seeing dead hearts become living hearts. That's revival. It's resuscitation. Okay? At the core of the gospel is revival. And here's what's beautiful is we actually are seeing this in Exodus. We've seen it. It was a revival when they left Egypt and now we're in the wilderness. There's another revival coming as God gives the law, which is where we are now. Right? Anywhere where life is breathed into dead places, that is revival and the church should celebrate it. So what do we do here locally as the branch church in Dahlonega, Georgia? We should pray earnestly and steadfastly for these people who are part of the revival. We should commit to praying for them. We should pray that they find local churches if they don't have local churches. We should pray that the local churches are ready to disciple them. So if we have new believers, if you're a new believer in the room, it's our covenant to you to walk with you in your Christ likeness. Okay? So you don't just become a Christian and then you're good. We, all of us, are sinners by nature, and so we have to grow in our Christ-likeness. So what does that mean? That we have to daily die to ourselves. So let's pray that those churches in these areas are ready to receive them and then to launch them back out into the world. Revival that stays confined isn't true revival. Jesus says, go to the ends of the earth. So if revival is real, we're going to see the gospel reach places that gospel hasn't reached in a long time. And we should be extremely celebrant of that. Okay? So skeptic, no more, all right? So uh, I want to give two cautions, though, okay? Because this is, I think this is right, and I think it's appropriate. The first caution is that emotions aren't enough to save us. Emotions aren't bad. Emotions aren't evil. Emotions aren't sin, but they're not enough to save you. Only Christ, by the power of the Spirit, can save you, okay? It was the work of Christ on the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection that saves us, not our emotions, Okay. There was a, uh, in, in Jonathan Edwards' time, there was another guy named Charles Finney who played with congregants' emotions. If you want to hear me go off on Charles Finney, come to Branch School of Theology next month. I have a whole bit, okay? Uh, anyways, but he, in, at the end of his life, he even confessed to this. Like, he, he was saying that his job was to make you feel really, really, really bad about yourself, to be really, really, really scared of hell, and then to make you repent and come and be saved. That's not deadness coming to life. That's not what we see in the Bible. It's certainly not what we're seeing in Exodus. So the first caution, emotions aren't enough to save us. Although I believe that the Spirit can use emotions to convict and break your heart. Okay? Are we good there? The second caution is that we can't neglect the truth of the Bible. We can't. Okay? For revival to be real revival, it has to be rooted in the gospel, and it has to be rooted in the Word of God. All right? So those are my only two cautions. Those aren't condemnations from what I'm seeing. I'm not seeing the, uh, those not happening, okay? But if you're like me and you see those things, like, huh, that seems really weird. Uh, Maybe we need area, maybe we need to grow some, okay? Uh, I know that it is, it has softened my own heart this week, and, um, and I'm thankful for that, guys. I have a hard heart that needs to be softened too, okay? So the last thing that I, I would say for us locally is that we need to be prepared, We need to be prepared. I heard this week, Andrew sent out a thing. There's 155 people plugged into a family group. Looking around this room, I don't know how many people are in the room right now, but the fact that we have 155 people who are in a family group tells me two things. One, we need more family groups. 
But two, that family groups, is, those are an important environment for spiritual formation. That's the fruit. And I don't say that to celebrate what we're doing. I celebrate that, say that to celebrate what God has done, right? He is growing the family groups. He is growing our church. But we have to be prepared to disciple, to lead, to guide, and to protect the local church. Okay? Soapbox over. Exodus chapter 23. You ready? Is everybody good with that? I felt like that was an appropriate thing. I wasn't planning that all week, but uh, I was, I've been really convicted with my own response and felt like it was important to share it with you if you shared that response, okay? All right, Exodus chapter 23. Uh, I'm going to read this text in its entirety, and then I'm going to come back and we'll, we'll take it kind of verse by verse in chunks. But we are in a section called the Book of the Covenant, okay? This, is, uh, this has been really hard. Okay, it's been a really difficult few weeks in Exodus, okay? Uh, sometimes the, the stuff is a little weird, it's a little strange, it might not make sense to us, and what we've got to do is, again, what we're after is we're, we're here to learn and to remember and to grow in our understanding of God's nature and character, okay? And so I hope that's what we've had so far, and I certainly hope that's what we'll have today. But this book of the covenant is really uh, God giving his people application for the Ten Commandments, okay? So you probably heard of the Ten Commandments before. You might not have heard of the Book of the Covenant, uh, but the Ten Commandments we get in Exodus 20. Now what we get is God saying, here's how this looks in everyday life, okay? And again, their everyday life historically is a little bit different from us, but I think the principles remain. The law isn't about God controlling his people, but proving to them that he has what's best for them, okay? So let's remember that. Let's, let's read the text today. This is... Exodus chapter 23, verses 10 through 19, okay? For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the fields may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Verse 12, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. Verse 16. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. Verse 18, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first, first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for uh, this morning. Uh, God, we're grateful for a new life found in Jesus being celebrated around our country. Uh, we have prayed for revival, particularly among 18 to 22, 24-year-olds. And God, we're, we pray that what is happening will have lasting and eternal impact 
in your kingdom. We pray that brothers and sisters are coming uh, to life for the very first time. And uh, God, we trust that your spirit can move in mighty ways and will move as you have promised in your word. And so, God, we're grateful just for the stories. I pray that it would encourage us. I pray that it would help us to be reminded of your word. And now as we study Exodus chapter 23, I pray that you would go before us. Help us to be faithful and to look clearly at what you would have for us. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so three things that we're going to look at here. The first is the Sabbath. Okay, this is going to be verses 10 through 13. And yeah, I'm linking 13 into this text. Okay, this is the one that has more to do about idolatry. The second section, we're going to look at the feasts, which might be fun for us. Uh, and then the last thing, we're going to look at the, the, the goat, okay, the, the goat's milk, all right? And maybe we should do that one first and just get it out of the way. I don't know. The way I have it is saved for last, so we'll leave it that way for now, okay? But with verses 10 through 13, what we see is God instituting and reminding his people how important rest is, okay? Now, we live in a world that's obsessed with working. We obsessed with, we're obsessed with personal growth. We're obsessed with fitness. We're obsessed with all of these things that have to do with us growing ourselves. We're really, really terrible at resting, Okay? And that's just globally, all right, within our culture. But we must establish a rhythm of work and rest, work and rest. And I would also add work, rest, and worship, right? I think, and they go in that order. But God didn't, uh, he didn't give us the Sabbath, right? This, Jesus says this, that Sabbath, was at, uh, Sabbath is for man, not man for the Sabbath, okay? So what is Sabbath, it is not just a day where you don't do anything. It's not a call to laziness. It's a call to dwell well in the presence of God, okay? To dwell well means to slow down. Maybe that means to turn your phone off, or maybe it means to go for a hike, or maybe it means to, for me, I feel no more Sabbathing than when I'm running. I, that's where I, my head is clear, my heart is pure, I'm crying because it hurts, okay? But it's, it fills me up. Okay, and when I spend, when, when my family just cultivates time to do whatever we want. Games are a big part of how we rest well together. The trampoline, or as Berkeley calls it, the jumpoline, right? So we have found that our family does best when the five of us are together. We can rest well. Okay, And so I know for all of us, we're all in different seasons of life. Some of you, you're empty nesters, and some of you don't even know what a nest is yet. And some of you have little kids, and it seems like the nest is on fire, okay? But we have to figure out what does resting well look like. So what I want to do is I want, us to, I want to give a biblical example, biblical foundation for this. And this goes all the way back to Genesis, okay? So this is Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. If you've been around church for a while, if you've been around this church, we've preached this text before. But listen to these verses. It says, thus the heavens, this is right on the backside of creation, okay? Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, in all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So here's just, this should seem obvious, but I'm going to say it because I like to say obvious things and make you think that I'm really smart. God didn't rest because he was tired. Okay? If God is eternal, if he's omnipotent, which is all-powerful, if he's omniscient, which means all-knowing, if he's omnipresent, which means he's all places at once, 
If he can be that, then he cannot be tired, okay? It is outside of his nature to be tired, okay? So why did he rest on the seventh day? He rested to give us an example, okay? Because what did he issue Adam and Eve? He said to steward the garden, which was hard work. It got harder once sin entered the world because the ground got hard and the snake would bite you on the foot, but it wasn't always meant to be hard. It was meant to be worshipful because why? Adam and Eve were in the presence of God, okay? So sin enters the world, and now work becomes labor, all right? Now, if you're a college student, you're like, you're studying whatever you're studying, and you're hoping to get a job in something you're really passionate about, okay? That will last for 18 months, and then you have a job, okay? I don't say that to, like, disappoint you. That's just the real life, right? Once you get your first house or you move into your apartment, which, by the way, I'm finding out that apartments are insanely expensive. I can't help you with that. It just is the world that we live in, right? But then you realize, oh, I'm just working to make money. I've got a job, okay? A couple years ago, you were passionate about it, and your graphic design, now all of a sudden, everybody's a graphic designer, okay? Sorry, that was, that was a fun one for me. But uh, anyways, sorry if I hurt your feelings on that one. But let's, let, let's talk about the Sabbath, okay? The idea of Sabbath goes so hard against the grain of our culture that we don't know how to talk about rest. All we know how to talk about is burnout. And burnout comes on the backside of not resting well. We're so busy. We're all workaholics. Even if you're lazy and you play video games all day, that has become your workaholicism. Okay, so we all have these things that we're giving our attention away from God and to the things of the world. And here's the reality, guys. We really like it. We really like it. Our paychecks are bigger. We seem happier. And at the end of the day, we crash into the bed and we are unhealthy and we are tired. We're always pressed for time. We're always in a hurry going from one place to the next. Right. And what is happening? Slowly, we're beginning to die. So I think that we understand the importance of time. We just don't know how to spend it wisely. So here's, here's the way that this looks for my life right now, okay? There are some things that I really want to be a part of that I have to say no to. Not because I don't like you. Not because I don't want to hang out with you. Not because I don't think I would have a really good time. But because my family is the most important thing, and I have to guard that. That's a hard thing. You have to learn that, Okay? And so when we sit down as a family and we say, what does the next month look like? It's usually followed by weeping and gnashing of teeth, okay? And then we get real clear-sighted and we say, okay, here are the things that we're going to say yes to because these are the things that we value. Here are the things that we're going to say no to or we're going to say not yet, okay? Not yet is a good and healthy no, by the way, all right? So if you're pressed for time and you feel like you don't know how you're going to fit everything in, maybe it's just not yet. Maybe it's down the road a little bit, and that's okay too. So there's three things I want us to, to know right now. Uh, and and uh, I think the first one is probably the most important, okay? So if I have points, this is not a three-point sermon. I don't preach those. I, I'm not good at those. But I have three points right here, okay? So maybe this will be my first. It says uh, the first point is that our schedules tell us something about our priorities, right? I, I remember growing up, somebody said, I'll tell you who your God is if you let me look at your calendar and your bank statement." That should convict us, okay? Where you're spending your money and where you're spending your time will show you who and what you worship, okay? So our schedules tell us something about our priorities. 
The second one is that notice in the text, this is specifically with, uh, from Exodus 23, God's concern for all things, including the animals and the poor. Okay? So this isn't like a, Sabbath isn't for the religious elite. Okay? It's not for the entrepreneurs who own their own business. It's for all of us. Okay? The third is that the rhythm of work and then rest forces us to trust God and to trust him alone. Because here's what I know about our world. We think that if we work harder, we can what? Earn more. Okay, because the world has told us that we need to have the new things, the better things, the faster things, all the stuff that we've been talking about in Exodus already, the stuff that they were fleeing from Egypt. They also plundered them and took it with them so they didn't have to really work for it. But all the stuff that the world says is that you have to have, right? Watch the Super Bowl ads. All of those things that they're spending, well, it was like $7 million for 10 seconds. It's insane. All of those things are distracting us from what God has for us. And so what we have to do in rest is to trust that God will provide for us. Sabbath is two things. It is first a gift, and it is second a command. Okay, it is first a gift and it's second a command, and we should receive it with thankfulness. I, I remember there was a time in my life when we lived in Texas. I was, I was taking like 18 hours of grad school. I worked a part-time job. We'd been married for a year, and it just seemed like, oh my gosh, how are we going to do everything? And somebody said, you just have to slow down. Receive where you are, whatever season you're in. And some seasons are more busy than others, okay? I'm 37. I feel like my family is in a pretty busy season, okay? Kids are in sports. I got to travel for work. The church is going bonkers. Everybody's getting married at the same time, right? So we have all of these things, but we have to also look at the season of life with thankfulness and gratitude, right? You look back on where have we been? Where, are you, where is God leading us out? But we have to remember, too, as I said earlier, that Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So here's, here's how I think this works out practically in our lives. The stuff that we usually say, I can't to, we can, right? So we say we can't not study on Sunday, or again, Sabbath can be Saturday if it has to be. I work on Sundays. Uh, this isn't rest. This isn't Sabbath, although I really love it, okay? I love being here. I'm filled up every Sunday when I come, which is a real gift, by the way. So my family practices Sabbath on Saturdays. Well, sometimes Saturdays kind of get a little hectic, a little distraction. But the stuff that we say that we can't do, or I can't not study today, or I can't answer this email, or can't not answer the email, it's really just that you won't do it. Okay? That you won't. It's not a priority for you to turn your phone off. Right? Or I can't uh, not go into tutoring today, or I can't not go to shoot around, or I can't not do these things. And what we're really is we're just lying to ourselves and we're saying, you know what, what's more important in my life is this thing rather than God. Okay? It's not that you can't, it's that you've chosen not to, that you won't. Colossians uh, 3.23, this is, this is a passage that I think every Christian should have memorized. But the, the, the backside of Sabbath is a Christian shouldn't, should never be lazy, okay? I get the, that a lot. People be like, well, yeah, I just didn't do anything. I rested well. Doing nothing isn't what the Sabbath is, okay? So there's no excuse for a lazy Christian, and this is what Paul says in, in Colossians chapter 3. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. Then he continues. He says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So here's what that should look like in the workplace. The Christians on our team should be the hardest working people on the planet. 
right? That's just the biblical foundation of a work ethic. Christians should be the hardest working people that we know. They should be the hardest working church leaders. They should be the hardest working employers. They should be the hardest working employees, right? You all work at Jethro's, I feel like. You should make coffee with everything you got, right? So this is the, the reality is we don't show up late to work and be like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to clock in 30 minutes late. To be a follower of Jesus means that you're going and you're giving everything that you have. Andrew didn't ask me to say, I don't know if that's a real thing for you. That was just a random example. I had nothing to do with Jethro's. But when we go to work, we go to work well, okay? But then you've got to figure out in your life, and I think this has more to do with faith than anything else, is when you go home, you're home. When you go home, you're home. You're not worried about your phone buzzing or that email that you've got to get out or there's this deadline. If you're missing a deadline, then you haven't planned well, okay? So the, the interesting thing in Exodus 23, though, is verse 13, and I'm going to read it again because I think this is a result of not resting well or not Sabbathing, okay? Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. I think that the workaholic culture leads to idolatry. I do. I think maybe your job is your idol, or maybe some future is your idol of how much income you have, or some retirement scheme, or whatever thing it is, that you have some other idol. Something else is at the center of your life other than God. So we get this random verse right here about idolatry, but it all has to do with idolatry. For us to Sabbath well means that we've killed the idols of the world and we're resting in the presence of God. That is a beautiful and freeing rest. Ultimately, it's a rest that goes against the grain of our world. Okay, let's talk about feasts now that we've rested well. Chapter 23, verse 14. So listen, I'm going to read this again just to remind us. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. Verse 15. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Aviv. Now just a reminder, okay, when God's people were finally called out of Egypt. Remember the whole back and forth with all the plagues and all that kind of stuff. All of a sudden God said, now's the time you, have, you don't have time for your bread to rise. Okay, it was unleavened bread. So even the unleavened nature of the bread was that God's instituting, hey, it's time to go, okay? Now, what we see over the course of Scripture is that the leaven is representative of sin, okay? So for God to say here that you shall keep a feast of unleavened bread is to remind them of their holiness, okay? So uh, where were we? Uh, for in it, this is at the tail end of verse 15, for in it you came out of Egypt. See how God's always reminding them of where they've been. Then I love this last part, and we'll come, we're going to deal with this by itself after we do all of the feasts, but none shall appear before me empty-handed. Okay? So a couple of things here, uh, kind of some descriptions, and then what is the point of these feasts? Because we, we don't do a great job of celebrating feasts anymore, certainly not uh, Old Testament feasts. Um, we do a great job with big church holidays, and we try to feast around those, uh, but our culture is a little bit different. So the first is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This feast was to celebrate Israel's liberation, their freedom. They're finally free from Egypt. It's a time to remember God's faithfulness to redeem his people in the Exodus, okay? So what do we learn about God in the Feast of Unleavened Bread? We learn that God is our Redeemer, 
okay? That God is our redeemer. He's the one who liberated us, not just from Egypt, but from sin, okay? So the second feast, verse 16, you shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field, you shall keep uh, well, let's, okay, that's the same verse. So let's do a Feast of the Harvest, which is also known as the Feast of Weeks. So if you can continue to read, particularly in Leviticus, like chapter, I think it's 23, it's the Feast of Weeks. In the New Testament, the Greeks would celebrate this as the Feast of Pentecost. Okay? So what do we know about this? The Feast of Harvest celebrates God, God's provision for his people. It's a celebration of first fruits. Right? A couple years ago, um, we had just moved into a new house that had garden beds. We didn't even have to build them. They were already there. It was amazing. And so we're like, we're going to plant some stuff, and it's going to grow, and we're going to eat for free. And nothing made it into the ground. Nothing. The seeds got all put in these little fancy things that stay inside, and you keep them in the sunlight, and they're supposed to sprout, and then you go plant them. They all died in the sprouting device because we're not horticulturalists, and we know nothing about growing plants. We're thankful that our kids are alive every day. But in a culture where agriculture is the predominant means of life and the means to make a living, the first fruits is different. The first fruits is a reminder that God does the growing, okay? That God does the growing. So by giving back to God at the beginning of the agricultural cycle, it's an acknowledgement that he is the one who gave to you in the first place, okay? Now, it was our irresponsibility not to get him in the ground a little earlier, okay? It's sin. I recognize that. But what God's doing here is he's saying, I want you to set aside time just to remember that I am going to be your provider. I'm the one who makes it rain. You can plant the seed, but I'm the one who makes it grow. Let's go back to revival. Who's the one that plants the seed for revival? It's God who does that. He's the one that waters and makes the thing grow into something now that everyone is talking about. Praise God for that. Okay? It's, it's part of the Christian life. I mean, this, go back to our kids, not my kids, but well, my kids too, but all of our kids, when we, we're trying to just plant little seeds in their life. I mean, I pray this all the time over my children, like just that little gospel seed. Like even in family group, when kids run through and they're about to kill each other, I mean, I just pray, like, I'll, Lord, would you just let them as they're passing by? One, don't let the house burn down. But two, would this be a place where maybe they would hear just a little seed of the gospel that one day would grow into a full fruit of salvation? Right? So when our kids leave here every day, I mean, I would encourage all of us, we pray that in those rooms right now, or the ones who are in the room now, would, would they just a little seed be planted? Would it just a little seed or lots of seeds be planted that one day would grow into the full fruit of salvation? So what do we learn about the Feast of the Harvest, that God is our provider? Okay? The last one is the Feast of the Ingathering, which is right there at the end of verse 16. He says, You shall keep the Feast of the Ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. And then he goes on in verse 17, he says, Three times in the year you shall, shall all your males appear before the Lord your God. So the Feast of Ingathering is the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, we'll, we'll get back around this, uh, uh, I don't know, in a few weeks, uh, maybe a couple months. But this is to celebrate God's salvation. Right? Now we're at the backside of the agricultural year, and we have, we have reaped the reward of a good harvest. Right? So this is, this is joyous. This is celebratory. This is, this is worship. Right? So the Feast of Ingathering commemorates how God continues to provide for his people at the end of the agricultural year. So what does this teach us about God? It teaches that God is our sustainer. 
So God is our redeemer, he's our provider, and he's our sustainer. So all of these feasts woven into the rhythms of our lives are meant to point God's people, to point us to his love and his faithfulness to us. How easy is it for us to get distracted that God has our highest possible good in mind? When the world says, hey, I've got something better for you, right? So all of this flows out of Sabbath. So what about us? What about our rhythms? What about our schedules or our bank statements? We must remember that God's gracious redemption of his people preceded his regulation of their lives. Right? This is what we were trying to establish last week and the week before. It was Andrew was teaching. God saves them from Egypt before he gives them the law. Okay, So he's not asking them to keep the law in order to receive salvation. He has redeemed them, and he says, you are now my people. Do you remember that? You are my people, and I will be your God. This is, these are my favorite verses in all of the Bible. When God declares, I will be your God and you will be my people. And then he gives them the law. But God's people would not secure their salvation by keeping the law. Rather, they were already God's people, so they were called to obey him. That's hard, isn't it? It's hard that as they live this way, as they live a life of obedience, here are some things that happen. One, order, civility, charity would become the character of their life together. I pray that would be the character of our life together. What would it look like if we lived with those values of order, civility, and charity as the nature of who we are as a community? The last thing I want to say about the feasts is this. This comes from Philip Ryken in his commentary. He says, The three major Old Testament feasts were rich in their teaching about salvation. Jesus Christ is the Savior God always planned to send. So already in the Old Testament, he gave his people experiences that would help them and us understand the meaning of their salvation. He continues, he says, Jesus is the source of our sanctification. He's the first fruit of our resurrection. He's the Lord of the harvest. He's the water of life and the sacrifice for our sin. This is the gospel according to Moses. Isn't that good? That is good. Okay, so the last thing, and then we're going to talk about goat's milk, is this idea of empty-handedness. This is something that I've been really wrestling with over the last, and I kind of confessed this at our family group this week, um, is this idea of empty-handedness, right? The law says you can't come before the Lord empty-handed, but the gospel says we bring nothing to the table of our salvation. So what's the tension there, right? What's the, how's the dichotomy? How are they different? And I think the difference is it's not our hands that... God the Father sees in salvation. It's Christ's hands. So while our hands are completely empty when it comes to our salvation, Christ's hands were pierced. They are full. They, are, they have holes in them. They are bloody. And they, are, they were meant to be ours. Right? So it's Christ comes with his hands full. And we come empty-handed. So in the law, we're required not to come empty-handed. Yet through Christ, we do. We do. So all the stuff that you feel like you're doing to impress God, you can stop trying to do that. He's not impressed by your effort. He's not impressed by your how many Bible studies or how much. Now, those are all good things. Don't hear me say they're not good things. But sometimes we can fool ourselves into this idea of being fruitful, and yet we haven't experienced fruit in our own life. The free gift of grace means that Christ comes with his hands full, and he empties them out for our rescue, for our restoration, for our salvation. Does that make sense? I think that's an important thing for us to remember, that we don't come with with full hands to the table of salvation. We come with empty hands, and Christ has made us full. Amen to that? Okay, let's talk about goat's milk, and then we're going to be done. All right, so uh, I'm going to read the verse. This is the last line in verse 18. 
It says, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I had originally attended, intended to skip this, okay, until I started to get text messages from all the family group leaders uh, through Andrew, which I appreciate the mediator there. Uh, like, what's going on here? And here's the simple answer. I don't know. I don't know. So I can tell you what I think is happening, but there's no real definitive answer here, okay? So if you're okay with that, I'm certainly okay with that because I just told a bunch of people in the room that I don't know, and I'm okay with it. But I think that the idea here is, is twofold. One is that what God intended to provide life shouldn't be meant for murder, okay? It shouldn't be meant to kill. The mother's milk was designed to give that goat life, not to take life, all right? So that's the first observation, if you will. That has nothing to do, I mean, I think we're pretty all, I think we're all safe in the room from boiling a goat in its mother's milk. I mean, I don't, I don't know. There's some new people, maybe you, you guys are into that, but uh, I've, never, I've never done it, so I think I'm good. But the, the second thing is that what God's doing is he's preparing their hearts for the pagan culture around them. Okay, so what we know for a fact is that the Canaanites were obsessed with this kind of thing because they thought that it, would, it helped fertility. Okay, so by boiling a goat in its mother's milk would make the flock more fertile. Well, God has just told us that I'm the one who provides, right? I'm the one who sustains. And so this is just a subtle little reminder. They would have, much, they would have understood this better than we do, but this would have been just that reminder of, hey, what's meant for life is not meant for death. That is the gospel, okay? And then what, what we have to see is that we can't be consumed with pagan culture, okay? Little g-gods have no space in the kingdom of big g-god, all right? So if a little g-god says to kill a goat in its mom's milk, we should, we should avoid that at all costs. That's all I have on the mother's milk, okay? You can email me later if you, if you have other thoughts on that, but um, I just wanted to address it because I know it came up in all... Did it come up in, in your group? Just a curious, like... Yes or no? It's okay. I'm asking you to do it. You can... Cool. Nobody. It's never mind. We'll just scratch that from the notes. All right. So in conclusion, what do we do here? I think, again, like we've said every, every week, we can't understand this theologically until we understand it Christologically. So concerning the Sabbath and the feast, we should remember that it's God's grace that saves us. Okay? God's grace saves us, and our response is to worship him, to obey him, to rest in him, and enjoy him. And that's what we do when we come to the Lord's table every week. We worship him, we obey him, we rest in him, and we enjoy him. And so as we enter into a time of communion, I, that is my prayer for you, and I pray that you would find that rest at the table. Ultimately, that's the only real rest that's found in Jesus. And so as we do this now, I want to just, I want to spend some time praying, and uh, Riley and Molly Ann are going to come back up and close us in worship. But this, this supper points us back to the Passover, points us to our Lord's death, and it also points us forward to the coming kingdom where all things are made new and no more goats die in their mother's milk, okay? But the, I think the, the gospel fruit here, the gospel truth is that there's coming a day where the lion will lay down with the lamb. And that is the truth that we need to remember. There's peace and righteousness, and there we will dwell in the presence of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for a time to uh, just to worship. And God, I'm grateful to wrestle with difficult texts, uh, just even in my own life. And uh, as we come now kind of almost to the end of the book of the covenant, God, I pray that you would just help us to remember who you are 
that you, that you are the redeemer, that you are the provider, and you're the sustainer of all things. And uh, free us from the conviction that we have, like, we have to keep working harder to provide for ourselves what only you can provide. Uh, and I pray that you would call us to be uh, good stewards of our jobs and our education, that we would work hard for your glory. And we know that through that, that you have our good in mind. So help us to be faithful. Lord, we love you. We pray for just uh, this time of communion, that you would help us to remember well, to rest well, and to obey you in all things. We love you. We thank you so much for your son, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.